Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Aaron Matek. How's it going, everybody? How's it going, Katie? I'm good. You? I'm great. No complaints. Great. Yeah. You know what I did this week? What's that? Well, I celebrated the last few days of my birthday month. Mm. Um, keeping that going. And I saw Barbie. Oh, okay. How is it? Uh, it was okay. I still don't know what I thought of it, honestly. I'm still thinking about it. But it also hasn't stayed in my mind that much, so it's not that memorable. I, I, it's rare that I see a movie that I'm so kind of like, I don't know what my thoughts are on it. But that's basically where I am with Barbie. Uh, I didn't have anything pink to wear. A lot of people wore pink, though. Uh, I saw it with my aunt who got teary-eyed. I will say that at the end. There was some teary-eyedness. I think a funny part of it was when there were trailers before, and so- there was a trailer for Oppenheimer, and someone yelled out, Boring. They want the real deal, which is Barbie. What yeah. I've heard about Barbie is that it basically tries to cover all bases. Like it's got something in there. If you're critical of Barbie, it's got a lot in there. If you love Barbie and see nothing wrong with the whole Barbie thing. So it's kind of, it's basically trying to cover every single possible track and every single uh. kind of political angle and something for everybody. You right. Know? In um, a negative way or in a positive way? Well, that's the question. I don't know. That's is that positive or negative? Right. I don't know. right. Maybe it dilutes the, whatever message should be or could be there. Yeah, well, which sounds kind of similar to how people are reacting to Oppenheimer. Many people who say it's a powerful movie, but yet it ignores some really key aspects of the development of the atomic bomb, right. which, funnily enough, we're going to talk about in today's show. There you with go. There you have it. Greg Mitchell. So that is coming up. Yeah, that's coming up. One thing I'll say about Barbie is that America Ferrara, who's in it, her voice really reminded me of AOC. Sure. Well, we know who might be playing AOC then in the biopic. Seriously, I just gave you all an idea. Yeah, You're welcome, people. Good. Yeah, I will also um, not watch that movie. I can guarantee that right now. Yeah, I will sure. not be watching the OC biopic, but because uh, you like her too much, you just don't want her to be ruined. There was an article in New York Magazine this week that basically said AOC is just a traditional Democrat. Now, right, but pretty accurate That's by Freddie DeBoer. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty accurate. Sad yeah. but true. And of course, don't forget to become members of either Substack or Locals, usefulidiots.substack.com, usefulidiots.locals.com, where you get to watch our extended interviews and also get to receive our weekly segment, Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness. Well, should we start with our four basic food groups? Let's do it. So for Democrats Suck, we're going to do a double feature today. We're going to talk about Democrats who are great on one issue, but then awful on something else. And we're gonna start with Congress member Rashida Tlaib, who is so brave on many issues, especially Palestine, defending Palestine rights, standing up to the anti-Palestine lobby. Um, but when it comes to other issues like the Ukraine proxy war, she takes the side of the neocons who she bravely opposes when it comes to Palestine. And another issue where she takes the neocon side is Syria, where she's just introduced a new bill. And she says, Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad is a war criminal. I introduced the Justice for Syrians resolution with Congress member Ilhan Omar to hold Assad accountable for crimes against humanity. It's time for the Syrian people to have justice. And what I pointed out in response to her is this. I said, maybe you're unaware of what's admitted in the pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times in Syria the U.S. waged, quote, one of the costliest covert action programs in CIA history with a budget approaching $1 billion a year, arming rebels who committed, quote, sectarian mass murder. 
these rebels killed and wounded over 100,000 Syrian soldiers and untold numbers of civilians. Where is the justice and accountability for your own government's actions? And my point there was like, if you're trying to hold Syria to account for war crimes and you're trying to hold it, you know, you're trying to seek justice, look at your own government first. And the fact is the U.S. waged a dirty war, which was one of the most expensive in its history, arming sectarian death squads, and the Syrian government fought back against that. And whatever you think about the Syrian government, whether you think they're legitimate or not, countries, I think, have the right to defend themselves against foreign proxy wars, as was the case here. And so rather than trying to hold a foreign government accountable for whatever crimes they committed, why not look at your own government's crimes first, given that, again, no Syrians voted for the U.S. government to come and pour tens of billions of dollars into the country for a dirty war. And just as on January 6th, when we saw a three-hour riot, Democrats cheered a crackdown then, um, I don't think it's fair to hold Syria accountable for atrocities that occur when they're defending their country from a foreign dirty war. I just don't think that's fair. I think it's really hypocritical. So, and meanwhile, it's also just so um, disingenuous when, uh, you know, Congressmember Tlaib knows that these narratives about Syria are used to justify sanctions now and are used to justify occupying one third of Syria as the U.S. is doing. So, even though she's sometimes voiced criticism of sanctions, she's still not propping up the narratives that sustain them. And I just think that's so it's, just, it's so derelict and it's so hypocritical when your own government is still occupying one third of the country. That, to me, should be the responsibility of anybody, what their own government is doing. We can't control what Syria's government is doing. We can control what our government is doing. And in Syria, we've done a lot that requires accountability. And these Congress members from the squad, unfortunately, are not doing that. They're instead propping up the neocon narrative. And I just thought that was unfortunate. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, you mentioned that it's it's kind of wrong to hold foreign leaders accountable. I don't know if it's wrong to hold them accountable. I think it's wrong to not address your government's actions first. Yeah, I, that's what I'm saying. Totally agree. Yeah. There's a space for holding anybody accountable, but first, you have to not be a hypocrite and take responsibility for your own actions. Especially when you're literally part of that government. You're an yes, elected exactly. representative yeah. in that yeah. government. Yeah. Yeah. And in Syria, it's not a case where the U.S. is like supporting uh, what, what was called moderate rebels. That was the fiction. The reality was that Jake Sullivan admitted that Al Qaeda was on our side. So the U.S. knew it was fueling an insurgency dominated by Al Qaeda, still sided with them. And that, to me, requires accountability before you can start talking about accountability on a part of uh, Assad's government or anybody yeah. else. Um, anyway. So you have a double feature, you said, right? So that you was your Barbie. Feature. What's your Oppenheimer? Okay, yes. So the double feature is, so just as the squad are very bold and brave on Palestine, but awful on so many other issues like Syria and the Ukraine proxy war, someone like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's now running as a Democrat in the presidential race, who I think is so great and so brave on the Ukraine proxy war, is horrible on Israel. It's like the reverse. It's it's like a reverse double yes, exactly. It's a reverse double feature. So here is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announcing some public event with Rabbi Shmuley Botiak, who's a avowed anti-Palestinian bigot. So here it is, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announcing a public event called Fighting Anti-Semitism Championing Israel. And this is him appearing in New York City with Rabbi Shmuley Botiak, a anti-Palestinian bigot supported by the Adelson oligarchy, um, a really repulsive human being, I have to say. 
And Bobby Kennedy Jr., despite his courage on issues like the Ukraine proxy war, which I think genuinely needs to be commended, is appearing with people like Shmuley Botiak and validating them. And even, I have to say, taking stances that are to the right of Joe Biden when it comes to Israel. And even taking the far right Republican line, which is that Ilhan Omar should not be allowed on Republican, uh, on congressional committees because she's criticized Israel. So here he is. He's defending himself against charges of anti-Semitism because of what he said about COVID and Jews. And he does that by basically proclaiming what a fanatic Israel supporter he, he is. And he calls out Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who criticized him. He's saying this, quote, Debbie Wasserman Schultz has not, has not only refused to condemn the overt anti-Semitic rhetoric of Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. Again, all they've done is just defend Palestinian rights. There's nothing anti-Semitic at all of what they said. Uh, and Kennedy goes on, but she supported Omar's appointment to the Foreign Relations Committee, despite Omar's advocacy of a boycott of Israel. Like only the most fanatic anti-Palestinians have that line about Ilhan Omar should not have been on the House yeah, Foreign Affairs Committee. So ridiculous. Because she criticized Israel. So really, it's a bizarro world, you know, mirror image. Squad Democrats suck right. on the Ukraine and Syria proxy wars. Bobby Kennedy sucks on Palestine. And if only they could compare notes on the issues that they're good on right. and merge them together, they'd have an actual progressive uh, platform there. We but could Frankenstein them up. Fra progressive if Frankenstein, if only. If also, only. it's kind of weird. Why'd he tag Rashida Tlaib but not Ilan Omar? Maybe he's afraid of Ilan Omar and that tweet <laughs> RFK didn't tag her. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Well, for Republican suck, we have a clip that I think kind of speaks for itself from Jesse Waters of Fox News. Let's hear what he had to say about uh, Gavin Newsom and uh, the unhoused. Gavin's now at maybe midfield, but he has to understand homelessness isn't about lack of affordable housing. It's about drug addicts that want to wander yep. around and live in tents on the sidewalk. And so you can't coddle antisocial behavior. You can't subsidize antisocial behavior. You have to stigmatize it. You can't celebrate people with purple hair, with nose rings, four kids with four different men who are dressed like trash and make them out to be some sort of cutting edge heroes. You have to call them what they are. These are people that have failed in life and they're on their deathbed. And if we're not honest about it, we're never going to fix this problem. So here you have a Republican calling for the stigmatization of people on their deathbeds. Can you get more sadistic than that? I mean, talk about antisocial behavior. That's anti-human behavior. It's sociopathic. And right. uh, if anybody needs to be stigmatized, it's, it's Jesse him. Waters. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And I love the idea that he's he's talking as if the unhoused, the homeless population is celebrated or treated like some kind of celebrity class. Yeah. And the, the fact he can say someone's failed at life. I know. He doesn't know someone's right. background, what they've yeah. been through, how many people suffer 
traumatic incidents when they're young and how that impacts them for the rest of their life. And for him to just issue that blanket judgment, you know, I'm not going to psychoanalyze Jesse Waters, but whenever someone has such a harsh and cold view of other people, they need to look inward. Yeah. And he, of course, you know, it's interesting. His, um, his father was a child psychologist. No, his mother was a child psychologist and his father was a teacher. You'd think that he'd have more empathy for people, but you would, you totally would. You you totally would. It's, uh, that's just, yeah. What can you say? He is very humble, though. He wrote a book called uh, How I Saved the World. <laughs> anyway. I, I've had one interaction with him for privately, and I'll just say it wasn't very pleasant. Mm, wasn't? It wasn't very pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of anti, so I, I can speak from pers- firsthand experience. I don't think he's the embodiment of, you know, sociable behavior. Um, no. And, and yeah. also, you know, I just do have to bring this up because he seems like a very reactionary conservative family values type of guy he married someone who then filed divorce from him after he admitted to an affair with the producer of his show okay and you know that not to issue any judgments of him because whatever that that's that happens people have affairs but sure he's he that's in his background after he's now faulting women for having multiple partners yeah exactly right so yeah yeah yeah. So I guess as long as you cheat and then divorce, you're okay. <laughs> that he respects the sanctity of marriage. So as long as you cheat, get married, get marry someone else, you're okay. Mm-hmm. Who the hell is he to be talking about family values? Yeah. So big ass hypocrite, obviously. No surprise, but it was just kind of blatant, even for Fox News Republicans. So that's my Republican suck. All right. For isn't that weird? We have a new race in town. This is coming out of Washington State. It's called the Grandparents Derby, where apparently, for some reason, I don't really understand why, a bunch of grandparents got together and ran a race on a horse track. And let's go to the video. Now, we've slowed this down for our uh, video audience. This is not full speed, I believe. Yeah, that would be very sad. Yeah, so we're watching this in slow-mo, but there it is. They had a race of grandparents to be a to be in the race, you have to be a grandparent, I guess. That's the only criteria. And uh, there it is. <laughs> There's the footage. Yeah, and they they look like horses because they're coming out of the gates that horses come out of, right? Yeah, yeah. One I falls it down. Like, it's risky. Yeah, it is risky. I mean, I I think there are other. I mean, we, we have, sorry, another one falls down. We have two people falling. Yeah, this is this actually is an extreme sport if you think about it. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But there's our winner, and uh, yeah. You know, All right. it's cool seeing people get together and having fun and having a good time. And I'm sure their families were there. It's probably a fun day for everybody. But I just, I guess, just be careful when you're yeah, running. Yeah, grandparents, be careful when you're running. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's pretty weird. But it's it's also a good lifestyle choice to be healthy and engaged. All right. So for my Isn't That Terrible, uh, let's go to the lovely New York Post, uh, which has an article saying, woman has sack of marbles growing on scalp since childhood removed. So this is kind of a bittersweet story because uh, the sweet part is that she had them removed. The the This uh, bitter part or why this is terrible is it's just terrible for anyone to have a bunch of marble-like structures in their head. So reading the article... Um, This was the one case where someone wanted to lose their marbles. Doctors were shocked over the case of a woman in India who had a bulging growth on her head that was filled with white globules like a sack of marbles. 
The Uncommon Affliction was detailed recently in the journal Radiology by doctors at the Sri Sathya Sai Institute of Higher Medical Sciences. The unnamed 52-year-old Bangalore native told doctors that the protuberance had been growing on her scalp since childhood, but that had never sought medical help until now. Uh, apparently, the operation was uh, painless. And guess how big the mass had ballooned up to? How big? All right, ready? Four inches long. F f no, six inches long, four inches wide, and nearly five inches tall. And you can see that... Um, you can see it in the article, that that uh, x-ray. You know, it looks like a bun. It really does look like a bun. That is quite something. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Pretty terrible. I would not want to have that. No. Yeah. Must have felt, imagine the relief she must have felt afterwards. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. That is That's terrible and weird. I mean, really. It really is, yeah. Um. The article describes them as tapioca-esque globs. Mm. The things people have to go through, you know? It's quite something. Yeah. Wow. Well, I hope she's okay, and congrats to her on making it through that. That's such a horrible ordeal. Yeah, uh, it is true. And, and it, luckily, there's no reoccurrence, which is really important. You mm. do not want a reoccurrence of that, yeah. Yeah. And those are the four basic food groups. We're really excited to bring onto the show Greg Mitchell, who has written more than a dozen books and directed three documentaries, two of which have aired nationally over PBS. He's explored the atomic bombings and nuclear dangers for the past 40 years, including in the book and film titled Atomic Cover-Up, and his recent award-winning book, The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. He now writes a daily free Substack newsletter called Oppenheimer from Hiroshima to Hollywood. And Oppenheimer is what we're going to discuss with him today, this new blockbuster movie that just come out, looking at the father of the atomic bomb. We're going to talk about what Oppenheimer got right and what got wrong. So let's go to Greg Mitchell. So, Greg, thank you so much for joining. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Wanted to start off by asking you what Oppenheimer, the film, got wrong, what it got right, what it left out. Okay. Uh, well, it's, uh, I did see it at an early uh, screening. And uh, it, uh, as far as what's in there, it's actually re uh, remarkably accurate uh, in what's in there. Now, it's based on a, a fine book, Pulitzer winning book by two of my friends, Kai Bird and the late Marty Sherwin. And Nolan really took it as gospel. Uh, so there's a lot of scenes, a lot of uh, dialogue almost directly from the book. And uh, it's a powerful film. It's very well-directed, well-written, uh, great acting, uh, great technical details and so forth. So uh, I think everyone should see it because it, it is an adult film. It's a kind of refreshing, uh, serious subject. And it does end with uh, you know a compelling, uh, profound, if, if you will, uh, attention to the current nuclear dangers and nuclear threats uh, today. Uh, so as far as that goes, uh, there's a lot to recommend it. Uh, on the other hand, I did find another, uh, a number of troubling omissions from, you know, from my point of view of someone who's researched this for uh, 40 years. Uh, and I have a particular, I've had a particular focus on the actual use of the bomb, 
the decision to use the bomb, the use of the bomb, what happened when we used the bomb, what happened in the aftermath in Japan, and particularly how Americans since then uh, have dealt with this and pictured it and responded to it or not responded to it. And uh, that's led me to uh, look at uh, every Hollywood movie and every TV film, TV series that has been made uh, in relation to this uh, making and using of the bomb. And a lot of people have complained, I think somewhat unfairly, about what the film doesn't show, Mm -hmm. uh, given that it's only one movie and it is a biopic. It's not about, you know, from the Japanese perspective. Was there anything, though, that you felt was misrepresented or left out uh, in a kind of inaccurate or misleading way? Well, the, uh, I suppose anything that's omitted that's that's important is makes it misleading. Uh, you know, it is a three-hour film. I mean, actually, in my Substack, I had a little item the other day, sort of taking issue with the claim that, well, what do you want? It's just a biopic named Oppenheimer. You know, it's not a history of nuclear warfare. Uh, but what is Oppenheimer known for? Why has why did Christopher Nolan call him the most important person in the history of the world? Uh, it's not because he, you know. He had a you know a mistress, or he went through a security hearing, or had an interesting uh, you know academic life, or whatever. Communist and party he, life. Yeah, he made, uh, he helped make, directed the project to make the bomb, and then helped it get used, and you know we've lived with it ever after. So, uh, you know, I don't sort of buy the explanation that you know what do you want? It's just a Hollywood movie when Nolan himself says he is the most important guy ever who ever lived. So uh, in terms of the omissions, I the omissions, I can tick them off quickly if, if superficially. You know, one is it doesn't really show what happened at the other end of the bomb. We don't see uh, Japanese uh, victims. On my Substack today, I actually uh, posted how in the uh, 1979 PBS series called Oppenheimer uh, with Sam Waterston as the man, uh, there's an, a, a virtually identical scene to what Nolan has in his film, which is Oppenheimer in a screening room, sc- screening room watching apparently footage uh, from Hiroshima uh, from on the ground briefly. Uh, the same camera angle is exactly the same. And in both cases, Oppenheimer you know, seems to look a little troubled. But in the uh, Nolan movie, we never see the screen. We never see any images where the Sam Waterston version, you kind of turn it around and you do see 40 seconds of, uh, you know, victims or what happened on the ground in Hiroshima. So that's that's one example. A second thing I would mention is it, it barely mentions Nagasaki. It doesn't mention Nagasaki, a rather important world event, 70,000 civilians killed there at least. Uh, it's almost as if it wasn't even in the original script and they realized the last hour they hadn't mentioned it. So they kind of shoehorn it in <laughs> parenthetically about three times. Uh, another thing is that uh, we don't, and, then, and this is kind of a, a crucial thing for me, is that it, if anything, it sustains the uh, the official narrative or what I call the Hiroshima narrative uh, that's held sway for the last 78 years, which is that, uh, you know, as much as it's regrettable in, in the sense it killed a lot of people, uh, basically we had to do it. It was inevitable. We dropped the bomb, the, only dropping the bomb and using two bombs. Uh, did we manage to save the lives of countless American Americans who would have died in an invasion of Japan? Um, so, and this was the only thing that we could do, and it was the only thing that uh, that caused the end of the war. And the movie does not really challenge that. There's a key scene: uh, the interim committee, which was the chief advisory committee to 
uh, Truman uh, on these issues I had a meeting and and the movie, uh, as with many other things, treats it very uh, quite accurately, uh, where they they have they briefly discuss uh, how to use the bomb and and if to use it against people in two cities. You know, Oppenheimer himself uh, shoots down the uh, uh, option of having a demonstration of the bomb in some way uh, or bombing some area that's not in the middle of a city. He shoots that down. Uh, and then we get a, a kind of a longer speech by another person on the committee who uh, details this Hiroshima narrative. Uh, thousands will die in an invasion. The Japanese won't quit. We have to use the two bombs. Uh, and that's really not challenged the rest of the movie. Uh, and instead, we get what uh, Killian Murphy, who's fantastic uh, as Oppenheimer. We we kind of have to read into his cryptic statements and, you know, and wonderfully expressive face uh, and claims that maybe he regretted, maybe Oppenheimer regretted taking part in that decision. And the fact that they, we did drop the bomb, it's very hard to tell. He's kind of all over the map in the, in the movie as he was in real life. And in reality, uh, in fact, Oppenheimer never did. In fact, at the end of his life, he was still defending the use of the bomb. So I suppose the, the movie's a little misleading in that. So did Oppenheimer was troubled. He was haunted, you might say, but not about the use of the bomb. The, 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 the fourth thing I will just mention very quickly is there's virtually no reference to radiation in the movie. We don't see warnings about the radiation effect. We don't see uh, there's tremendous focus on the Trinity test. Um, every filmmaker loves to focus on Trinity because no one died there. And there's great you know, uh, special effects. And it's a great moment, the triumph and celebration. They don't, they'd rather do that than look at what happened when we killed 160,000 civilians. So the Trinity test, we also do not see the fact that it, in the test, it released this radioactive cloud that imperiled local people who were not evacuated or warned. And then as we, we saw a new, a new study in the New York Times today, uh, how that fallout spread to 46 states and uh, there's been controversy ever since about uh, nuclear testing. You know, this sort of set the uh, set the example, the precedent for decades of nuclear testing, uh, secrecy, the whole secrecy state we see today, um, all the terrible effects that uh, radiation, radioactive uh, fallout have had on atomic soldiers, on downwinders, nuclear workers, indigenous um all down the line. So, um, you know, that's a lot to me to leave out. Some of it I can understand, but uh, those are, are sort of the omissions that I, uh, I, I I could tick off for you right now. And the Trinity test took place in New Mexico, right? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 1945. July of 45. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Right. Going back to um, Oppenheimer, the film, is it true that he helped select targets for the U.S. to bomb? Yeah, and, he, and 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 does the movie talk about that? Again, it's one of those things that's there's a I, you know I don't want to give away the movie. There is a shouting match kind of at the end at his security hearing where they're throwing things at him and he's just throwing things back, and you can barely hear some reference to uh, you know why you were you helped target. Um, but if like a lot of things in the movie, it goes by in about three seconds. But um, yes, he, Oppenheimer often gets a pass in books and movies uh, as someone who, well, he helped make the bomb, but, you know, then the politicians and the generals, you know, made use of it and uh, you can't blame him. But in fact, uh, 
you know, from the earliest moments, uh, he uh, took part in the targeting, sat with the targeting committee, uh, advised them on um, cities that could cities that should be selected. Uh, you know, the center of cities versus maybe a, actually a military base outside the city, for example. Uh, what height to detonate it at it for maximum destruction, and uh, you know, and so forth. So he was uh, he definitely was a part of the process of the. Uh, Deciding to use the bomb, uh, including ruling out uh, a demonstration shot. Uh, also, he opposed the f- famous Leo Zillard petition, where they, uh, the Zillard, the great physicist, got uh, uh, many of the atomic scientists to sign a petition calling on Truman to hold off using the bomb. And uh, Oppenheimer helped squelch that, uh, which we do see in the movie to, to some extent. And you've written about how there's a long tradition of basically Hollywood and the U.S. government essentially collaborating to craft a narrative Mm -hmm. that favors the U.S. line when it comes to the use of nuclear weapons. Can you talk about the history and and how this film fits into it? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I wrote a book uh, recently called The Beginning or the End, which is the same title of the Hollywood, the first Hollywood atomic bomb movie from MGM. My, my subtitle, however, is uh, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, the MGM movie was the first atomic movie. Uh, Paramount also raced to make a movie hiring Ayn Rand as the screenwriter, believe it or not. Um, it's a great book, by the way. I highly yeah. recommend it. Okay. Anyway, Paramount dropped out. Uh, dropped out. MGM made this film. And again, I'm trying to put this in a nutshell here, but basically the the film was inspired by the atomic scientists uh, warning to the world, uh, making a movie that, um, you know, would argue against building bigger and better bombs, uh, raise questions about the Hiroshima decision, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But once MGM gave script approval to General uh, Leslie Groves, who was played by Matt Damon in the new movie, and the White House, uh, the Truman White House, and Truman himself uh, weighed in. They got uh, they got uh, a scene, re- a retake of an entire scene. Uh, they uh, Truman got the, the actor playing him fired. So in the course of a few months, you had this actually absolutely remarkable intervention by both uh, the Pentagon and the White House in this Hollywood movie. Uh, and Oppenheimer himself finally signed off on the movie. He kind of, uh, in his Oppenheimer way, kind of dithered and, you know, uh, tried to take a higher plane approach to it, but ultimately signed a release allowing himself to be portrayed and serve as a narrator. And, but he, you know, he's quoted, you know, as I show in my book, he's quoted calling it idiotic and, you know, uh, the film was full of uh, laughable falsehoods and still Oppenheimer signed off on it. So, um, and then there, there really, there was another movie made six or seven years later about the, the pilot of the A-bomb plane, Paul Tibbetts, also very pro, obviously pro-bomb narrative. There wasn't another Hollywood movie till the late 1980s or Roland Joffe, a you know, fine director, made Fat Man and Little Boy. And uh, his heart was in the right place, but he made the mistake of casting Paul Newman as uh, General Groves. So um, General Groves really... Uh, carried the day in that movie. Um, and then there was not another Hollywood movie until until uh, Christopher Nolan took it on. So that's that's four movies in 75 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's been some TV films, a lot of documentaries, including including my own, which is called Atomic Cover-Up. 
Um, and, um, and that, but in terms of Hollywood and, and, you know, even, even major TV networks, uh, very, very little. Um, and I think it's cause you know, it's, it's a tough thing to, it's a tough thing to approach the killing of that many people, uh, American as the perpetrators, you know, there's been countless movies about world war two, particularly in Europe where the U S uh, can be pictured as, uh, well, and we're the good guys and the brave soldiers and liberating concentration camps. Uh, Nolan made the film Dunkirk, uh, for example. Um, countless, how many dozens of World War II movies set in Europe have there been? But uh, yeah, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's a different feeling to it. You know, we're kind of the perpetrators there of a sneak attack. Uh, you know, that there's elite pilots, elite scientists, government officials are at the center of it, not the GIs on the ground, you know, with their families at home and all that. Um, and it, you know, and, and, you know, hundred at least 160,000 civilians and, and many others died. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's not the happy kind of, uh, you know, triumph of, of Europe in world war two. It's, uh, it's, I've called it the Hiroshima raw nerve that we have, uh, witness since uh, experience since 1945 and this official narrative which is endorsed every year by the media and many historians is uh, you know still holds sway it might be might be tottering now but we'll see if the Nolan movie has much of an effect I, I don't think it's going to have much of effect on that because I think its message on the use of the bomb was very unclear uh, it may have a positive effect on the future of nuclear threat, nuclear dangers, and we'll see if younger people take this on and start another great anti-nuclear movement that we saw 40 years ago. What is the what is your response to the kind of harm reduction argument in defense of using the bombs that, you know, more people would have died had the war gone right. on? Yeah. Well, it, it's a strong argument. It's been a good argument for, for decades. Uh, and... Uh, it's it's been contested from the beginning. Uh, it, I mean, it's a lot to unpack, but the, you know, essentially, we used. There's no question. We used the bomb as soon as it was ready, as soon as we could. Uh, we rushed to use it. There's no question about that. And this is particularly true with Nagasaki. There was no delay in using the Nagasaki bomb. There's a lot of many historians who support the use of the bomb against Hiroshima, who will, will call Nagasaki a war crime, which which it was. Um, but, uh, you know, the question, Truman faced the question, um, you know, when we got into after the Trinity test uh, and before the bomb was actually used of whether to rush, use the bomb as soon as possible or uh, wait for uh, the uh, Stalin and the Soviets to declare war on Japan, which we had pressured him to do. And he had agreed to. And we knew he was going to declare war and, and Russia, which was a far more hated foe than feared, hated and feared than Americans, was about to rush across uh, Eastern Asia and take on Japan, and uh, uh, which they really, really dreaded. Um, and uh, so they were about to declare war around August 12th, August 10th. Um, and so the, the great historical question that has raged for decades is if Truman had waited a few days uh, or a couple of weeks to see what the Soviet invasion produced in terms of a surrender. Uh, history could could have been different, perhaps. Truman himself, and this was not known for many decades, but now it's 
accepted, uh, Truman wrote in his diary uh, near the end of uh, July uh, that uh, when, when he got Stalin's agreement to enter the war, he said, Finney Japs, when that happens, uh, even without the bomb. And he said the same thing to his wife and others had said the same thing. It was basically the feeling was that inevitably the war was going to end soon once the Soviets got into it. Now, we don't know if that would have happened. And I, the, you know, the, the people who defend the use of the bomb would say, well, we, we do know what did happen, which was that Japan surrendered uh, pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, we know that did happen. Uh, but of course, they surrendered after both the A-bomb and the Soviet entry. So uh, which was more important? Uh, could one have happened without the other? Uh, so it's, uh, you know, and there's much more to this debate. I don't, I don't want to summarize it in, in two seconds here, but uh, I, I would just suggest that there's a lot more to it than we see in the, uh, the new Oppenheimer movie. And I, I just always encourage people just to read, you know, check it out, read with an open mind and see where the evidence, uh, evidence may lead you. Uh, someone who I think agrees with your side of the debate is Dwight Eisenhower, right? Well, he said uh, he said he talked to Secretary of War Stimson about a week or 10 days before Hiroshima and told him he didn't think the bomb was needed, that Japan was about to surrender. Uh, Eisenhower later twice wrote in memoirs or in articles that uh, the bomb was not needed to end the war then. He called it this, we no need to use this awful thing. Um, Truman's, uh, the chairman of Truman's Joint Chiefs at the time, Admiral Leahy, um, later uh, again said that he uh, thought it was totally unnecessary and called it, likened it to poison gas um, using a, this w weapon, uh, this type of weapon particularly. Uh, and there, there, were other, there were other top military people who, who came to feel that uh, using the bomb was not necessary. Now, of course, many others thought it was. So, you know, it, it, it's too easy just to, to say, you know, a few people did uh, immediately uh, recognize that this was a wrong decision, but it, it took a lot of time for some people. And uh, like I said, the Hiroshima narrative of uh, it was the only thing that caused the end of the war and could cause the end of the war still holds sway. And I'll just mention one more thing in that regard quickly is that, you know, people might say, well, you know, it, you can't bring back the dead. You can't change the decision. It's all history. It's interesting, a tremendously interesting bit of history, but why continue to focus on it today? And my answer would be that the bombing didn't just, you know, kill a lot of people and all that. It also set a precedent for use, for future use. It showed, for one thing, that this bomb could be usable. So it, it helped spark um, the building of more and better and bigger bombs because, well, maybe this is a use usable weapon, even no matter what we say uh, about never using it again. Why do we have so many of them? Um, and second, even and today, and we do have what's what's kept me going for 40 years, I guess, is we still have what's called a first use or first strike policy. It is still official U.S. policy to use the bomb first, you know, in a, a conventional war or in an international crisis where we feel, um, you know, we should use the bomb. And uh, again, people say oh, well, that should never happen, et cetera. But. We do have these two precedents, exceptions. People would say, well, I, uh, yeah, we should never use the bomb. It's, it's morally wrong. It's horrible. It kills 
civilians. It releases radiation. It's the worst thing ever invented. But then they make two exceptions in 1945. You know, that's different. Now, I, I understand that was the end of a horrible, horrible war. Uh, you can't, you really can't overstate how horrible the war was. But on the other hand, it was every case is different. Every case you can make exceptions. Every day, every case you can, you know, uh, use this example. In fact, uh, Putin loves to use this when we lecture him about uh, not going nuclear against Ukraine. And, uh, you know, he loves to say, where do you get off, you know, telling me that you're the only ones who have used it and uh, and you still defend it. <laughs> so it's the defending. You can't do anything today about the using of it in 1945, but you can tackle the question of uh, what's the lesson for today on uh, what you can get away with in terms of deciding to use it again. Do you think that the potential of nuclear war is being taken seriously by the United States government as it negotiates, or I would say doesn't negotiate with Russia over the war in Ukraine? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, even though it sounds very flawed, I definitely will be seeing Oppenheimer because uh, I'm sufficiently intrigued. But Me too. I really appreciate Greg Mitchell giving us all that background on what the movie leaves out and what should be discussed in any kind of serious look at Oppenheimer's legacy. Yeah, and his book is really good. I started reading it. It's 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 quite the page turner. So I highly recommend that. Well, speaking of highly recommended, we highly recommend you go to usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com to get bonus content, including the extended version of our interview with Greg Mitchell. And Thursday, throw down your midweek dose of media madness. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.